Well, this morning, uh, we're going to get back into John, the Gospel according to John, uh, our study. It's been a couple months, I think, since we've been in John. We find ourselves today beginning chapter 11, and and I'm going to read the whole chapter. I know we just read a long chapter of Isaiah, but I want to read um, the whole chapter here so that we understand what is going on. This is a transitional chapter. We'll get to that in a second. We're only going to get through verse 6 this morning. I'll just tell you that right away. Uh, We need to kind of set up the chapter. So kind of bear with me a little bit as we set this up. But let's let's read this. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking someone to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, "Are Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called to her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, 
Come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. We are a needy people and we need to know you. We need to hear from you. And so please speak to us and give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we have um, worked through this gospel account, the gospel according to John, we started this book, I went back and looked, in August of 2017. Um, A couple of significant breaks in there. Almost two years ago, and we're just about halfway through now. Um, But as we have worked through this gospel, uh, the gospel according to John, verse by verse and passage by passage, passage, we've talked about some, some deep truths, some deeply theological dr- truths. John is the most um, explicitly theological of all the four Gospels. So there are longer sections of Jesus' teaching and shorter sections of narrative than we read in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Um, but as we turn this morning to chapter 11, we, we really turn back to a a narrative after some significant teaching, and beginning in chapter 13, we're going to see some more significant teaching. But we turn this morning in chapter 11 back to a narrative that is in reality, a, it's a detailed account of a miracle. 
And I think this is one of the most important miracles Jesus ever performed, and one that changes the direction of the book, or really, it closes the first section and opens the second section of John's gospel. So I've said before that one of the New Testament scholars, um, his name is Andreas Kostenberger, and one of the one of his commentaries on John, he divides, and he's not the only one that does this. He divides John into a, a prologue at the very beginning. There's an introduction, those first eighteen verses. Then there's an epilogue at the very end, and and there are two main books in the middle of John. The book of the signs, which is really through chapter 12, and the book of the glory, beginning in chapter 13. I would amend this just a little bit to say that that chapters 11 and 12 are really kind of transitional chapters that, that link together these two main sections of John's gospel. So in a, in a little while, when we get to chapter 13, you're going to see uh, that it's Jesus talking for a long time. Uh, Jesus is teaching. The book of the signs and the book of the glory. The signs are the signs of the Messiah, the proof that he is who he said he is. Uh, from turning water into wine to raising Lazarus from the dead here. The signs of the Messiah were proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And yet, John only records seven or eight signs. Compare that with Matthew and Luke, who each record 20 different signs, 20 different miracles. Mark has 18 different signs that Christ performed. Nevertheless, the purpose of these signs is clearly stated, just to remind you, this is clearly stated at the end of John's Gospel. These are written in chapter 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Belief and life. The gospel, according to John, is an evangelistic book. It is a book proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that you might believe and have life in his name. The book, of the, the book of the glory, as we call the kind of the second section here that we're transitioning to now, I said it's largely Jesus' teaching. What he is doing is preparing this new community, this new messianic community, this new, what we would call now the church, new covenant uh, fellowship of saints. It's the new assembly of the saints. He's preparing them for the future, for what life will look like when there's now a church. But throughout the gospel, John lays out for us seven of, he also does, he lays out seven of Jesus' I am statements that clearly identify Jesus as, as God and Messiah. So he had said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He will say, I am the true vine. And of course, in chapter 14, he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. So this is why we're entering into the book of the glory now, because Jesus is the great I Am. We see this so clearly in chapter 11. So in this chapter specifically, with the sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, It marks the end of the book of the signs, and it really is a perfect segue into the book of glory, because specifically because Jesus explicitly says in verse 4 that this sign will be done for the purpose of glory, the glory of God and the glory of the Son. 
And so now we find Jesus once again close to Jerusalem. Between chapters 10 and 11, a, a certain amount of time has passed, probably a few months. And according to the last couple of verses of chapter 10, Jesus had been ministering over on the other side of the Jordan River where John the Baptist had been preaching. Then he goes ahead, um, and when he does head into the city again, uh, here in the coming chapters, it's going to be for his triumphal entry. The next time he goes into the city, it's going to be for the triumphal entry. It will be the last week of his life before the cross. We could consider this miracle here as part of his public ministry. Um, But the public nature of Jesus' work is coming to a close. The public nature where there are large large crowds following him, him all over the Sea of Galilee because they've been fed and they want to see more signs, and they want more bread. That kind of public nature is coming to a close, and starting really in chapter 13, it's just going to be him and the disciples. I think this is why John the Apostle here casually mentions John the Baptist in chapter 10, verse 40, just at the very end there of chapter 10, because Jesus' ministry... His public ministry, it began and ended with the one who proclaimed as one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. His his ministry, his public ministry began and ended with John the Baptist, those who would proclaim Jesus. And now Jesus takes these next steps in his journey to the cross. And we need to know these are not easy steps. We, we can see this from the emotion in chapter 11. These are not easy steps for Jesus. But before we get there, there are some things that we need to kind of set up because this is a, a long narrative section. It's a, it's a long chapter. There's a long story here. And so a question that we need to be thinking about as we think about this is what does this final sign, raising Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus come out, what does this final sign signify? The signs that Jesus did were were signs pointing at something. What did they signify? Well, remember, um, so far we've seen Jesus use both both his words, his teaching, and various signs to teach us, for example, that he is the bread of life, that he is the water of life, that he is the light of life. We saw him turn water into wine because he's the the all-providing bridegroom. We saw him heal the, the son of a Gentile government official because he, he came to give life even to the rest of the world, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We saw him heal a layman at the pool of Bethesda because he, is, he has the water of life. We saw the feeding of the 5,000. He is the bread of life. We saw him heal a man who was born blind because he's the light of life. He walked on water. He he shows us that he has authority even over the laws of nature. And here in this final sign, he proclaims down in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. All of this, all of these signs and these teachings are bringing us step by step to the cross and then to his own resurrection. And it's at this point with with Christ's tomb kind of on the horizon here, his empty tomb, 
It's on at this point when when we're looking at the future, just just not too many days after this, that we can see the cross. And it's at this point that we're introduced to a family that John has not told us about before. We've not met them in John's gospel, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of the village of Bethany. So as I said, we're only going to go through these first six verses um, this morning. So if you like outlines, uh, let me, let me lay um, an outline out for you. And this is where I'm going to reveal my inner Baptist. I alliterated them. Um, it's just a bonus for today. Don't expect this every time. The first is this. There's an introduction in verses 1 and 2, an introduction. Then in verse 3 is an intercession, an intercession. And then, and this is where I had to stretch it, an interesting response Verses 4, 5, and 6. So an introduction, an intercession, and an interesting response. Let, let, let me read these verses again. Um, so John 11, just 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So let's begin with this introduction. Who who was Lazarus? Or or really, who, who is this family? Well, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all refer in some capacity to Mary and Martha, either together, Mary and Martha, or individually, as as Luke does in his gospel. So in Luke 10.38, we read this, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. It seems as though from that point on, this was earlier in his ministry, It seems as though from that point on, Martha and her family became very close with Jesus. Probably very close with his disciples, too, because he calls Lazarus our friend. Um, But there's there's kind of an elephant in the, if I could put it this way, there's an elephant in the gospel room here um, at this point. And that is this. This miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead... This miracle that is one of Jesus' biggest miracles. Now, he's performed some big miracles. We've seen him feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. We've seen him walk across the Sea of Galilee. We've seen him heal a man born blind. Uh, Another man who was an invalid for 30-something years. We've seen him perform some major miracles, but Lazarus was dead for four days. Um. It's not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. It's only here in John. But I think, I think the kind of the elephant in the room here, why is this in John and not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? I, I think there's something else going on here because look at the way that they are introduced in these first two verses. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That anointing, in verse 2, that doesn't happen until chapter 12. He's going to tell us about that in a little bit here. Um, 
But obviously, just even the way that this is worded, the readers, those who are hearing this gospel, they've heard of it. John seems to indicate that they at least knew of Mary. Mary and her sister Martha was Mary's brother. In fact, just just turn over to Matthew chapter 26. I want to read just a few verses from uh, Matthew 26. Um, There are two little tidbits of information that I want you to see. Um, It might, might be a little bit trivial, but I think it's helpful for our understanding of the personal significance of this miracle. So I'm going to read verses 6 to 13. So Matthew 26, verse 6 says this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That verse 13, that last verse there, is one of the little tidbits of info that I wanted you to see. John, John the Apostle, in writing his gospel... Pretty much everybody believes that that he wrote it last, that the other three were written long before John wrote his down, many years after these events happened. Um, His readers, those hearing and reading his gospel, they've heard of this woman who had anointed Christ for burial because of Jesus' promise here. And John is saying, I I was there, it was Mary. I, I can tell you now, it was Mary. Matthew doesn't name her, but John was there. And the other kind of tidbit of information that I wanted you to see, Matthew 26 there, is that they're at the home of someone named Simon the leper. But in John 11, and Luke chapter 10 backs this up, the home seems to belong to Martha. So there's a couple of possibilities. Either this was Simon and Martha's home, and Simon had leprosy, so it was the family home. And um, maybe by the time we get to the end, Simon is so ill that Martha is in charge of the home. Or Simon, another, the other possibility, this is just a little bit of trivia, Simon maybe also was known as Lazarus. Now, I haven't answered the question. Just hang on to that. I don't want to get too distracted with little trivia bits. I haven't answered the question is, why do, why do the other gospel writers not mention this story? And I think that the answer is in John chapter 12, verses uh, 9, 10, and 11. So flip back to John 11. We're really going to just flip ahead to chapter 12. In verse 9, it says this, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only in account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So John is writing this many years after the other three Gospels have been written. And Lazarus' life had been in danger. 
John 12.10 tells us they're, they're looking to kill Lazarus. His life has been in danger. And so he and the church, including Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had reason to, to lay low even while his sisters were well known within the Christian community. I'll put it like this. Let me quote um, a man by the name of F.W. Farrar. He was an Anglican minister in the later 1800s, chaplain to Queen Victoria. He also was a pallbearer at Charles Darwin's funeral, but that's a different story. He said this about the earliest church protecting the life of Lazarus. He says, there, there is therefore a distinct argument for the conjecture that when the earliest form of the gospel of St. Matthew appeared, and when the memorials were collected, which, used, which were used by all the other synoptics, the, the, the other gospel writers, there may have been some special reason for not recording a miracle which would have brought into dangerous prominence a man who is still living but of whom the Jews had distinctly sought to get rid of as a witness of Christ's wonder-working power. Even if this danger had ceased, it would have been obviously repulsive to the quiet family of Bethany to have been made the focus of an intense and irreverent curiosity and to be questioned about those things, hidden things, which no one have ever revealed. Something then seems to have sealed the lips of those evangelists, an obstacle which had been long removed when St. John's gospel first saw the light. In other words, John could write about this probably because Lazarus had since died. This is consistent with the idea of Jesus performing a miracle and then saying, don't tell anybody about this. And so we are introduced here to Lazarus and his testimony becomes one of the most important signs of Jesus' own resurrection. And while Mary and Martha are familiar to the readers, those reading this chapter, this book, Lazarus is not. They don't know who he is. But the name Lazarus is familiar from one other place in the New Testament. I'm going to draw a connection here. I want you to just kind of stay with me because I'm setting up the chapter. Turn over to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, there's a parable that Jesus tells. Um, listen to the details of this parable that Jesus tells that Luke records for us. Luke 16, verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, and feast sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a, a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that... You in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him, hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this is the only parable that Jesus ever told where a person is named. There must be significance that it's named Lazarus. But there's some other parallels as well. In in Luke 16, we find a a rich man clothed in purple, and Lazarus is presented as a a poor man who, who also dies. In John 11, Lazarus dies, is brought back from death, and then in John chapter 12, verse 10, the chief priest looked to kill him again. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the chief priests came from the the upper class of Jewish society, the wealthy, the rich of society. Exodus chapter 28 tells us when it explains the the priestly garments that they were purple, or at least had significant amount of purple in them. There are some other parallels. Not only are they rich and dressed in purple, in Luke 16 this rich man has a gate or a door. We learned about the true door back in John chapter 10. But also in John chapter 18, so further ahead here, we find out that the chief priest also has a a gate or a door. And Peter is kept outside while John goes in. The rich man in this parable is said to have had um, a father and five brothers. And the high priest, Caiaphas, his father-in-law was named Ananias and he had five sons. Now, maybe the connections are a little bit weak, and maybe some of you are asking what the point is. Maybe there's a little bit of conjecture here, but I believe the name Lazarus was chosen so that we would draw some lines between these two passages. Because the priests thought that they were the wealthiest people in Israel, or even the world, spiritually speaking. Because as Paul will write to the Romans, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, from the the Jewish people, from the Israelite people, would come the Christ, whom we know to be God over all, as Paul calls him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But just outside of town, in the home of a a poor leper, evidently, in the home of of one of the outcasts of society, Luke 10, 38 again says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was a very careful historian, who was also known to be very trustworthy, and he was detailed when he needed to be. And so I don't think these, these parallels are coincidences. And the point of both is very clear, at least for those who refused to believe. Remember the closing words of the parable that Jesus taught in Luke 16? Verse 31 says, He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's the parable that Jesus told. And then John 11, 53 
So from that day on, they made plans to put him, that is Jesus, to death. Why? Because someone rose from the dead. And not only did they refuse to believe, they hated Jesus because of it. And just a comment here before we kind of move on to the intercession, as we finish up this introduction. The Apostle John here calls Jesus the Lord in verse 2. He doesn't often do that. And when he does, it's always in a reverential way. If you remember, to address someone as Lord in the New Testament was almost akin to saying something like Sir, or in some cases, Rabbi. Mister, It was a, a title of, of reverence, but, but just sort of respect. Um, but John isn't that, he isn't that even that casual with this title, or he isn't flippant with it. He doesn't use it like that. And in fact, in verse 2, he's using it in connection with Jesus' anointing. We will get to that idea in chapter 12. But the idea is that this is such a significant event in the life of Christ that it was connected with with him being known as the Lord among the Christians that John is writing to. They knew him as the Lord. And so he is saying, this is the Lord. The same, he says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So they thought of him as the Lord. And I know maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves and kind of all over the place here, but with this passage with the foreshadowing of, of Christ's own resurrection, there's a, there's a bit of a, a reverential change in how John speaks of Jesus. See, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the, to the revelation of the glory of God, glory as of the only Son from the Father. We're getting closer to seeing Christ the Lord. This is exactly where Mary and Martha begin their intercession for their brother. So here's an intercession. It's verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now there's, a, there's kind of a couple of ways to look at this verse, at verse 3, and what they send to him. Um, usually when we think of this, we think of it as a, as a close friend sending a a message to Jesus to come and say a final goodbye, right? You better get here quickly. Um, Some of you have gotten those types of messages. Jesus loved Lazarus. It says that throughout the chapter several times. He called him our friend Lazarus when he was talking to the disciples in verse 11. Even some of the Jews understood how much Jesus loved him when they saw him weeping at Lazarus' grave. But there's another way to look at this as well. Maybe an additional lens that we could look at this scene through. This is a prayer. This is a prayer. These sisters are pleading with Jesus for their brother's life. Later, when he and his disciples finally get there, um, both sisters say the same thing verbatim. Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. Martha says it on the road in verse 21. And Mary, when she fell at his feet, down in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a bold statement. But I think it's also a statement of incredible faith. 
There may be some confusion. There was some confusion in their minds. But it was a statement of incredible faith. If you had been here, he would not have died. Of course, this is both a really a pleading with, with a friend to come, but it's also a pleading with the Lord to heal him. And for Christians, this is what, this is what prayer is. It's a pleading for mercy from the one who loves us. That's what they're doing. They're pleading for mercy from the one who loves them. So again, it is, it is true that the sisters addressed him as Lord, and, and that could just simply mean sir, but John had just called him the Lord. And the whole scene and, and the relationship that he has with, his, with this family here, they speak to more, a more substantial meaning when they say Lord. The Lord is the one with the power. The Lord is the one who walked across the sea, gave sight to a man who was born blind. Surely, if the Lord had just been there, Lazarus would not have died. There's actually a word missing here, at least in the ESV and other translations, that the sisters use. For some reason, the translators leave this out, at least of the, some of the newer versions. And that word is behold, or look, or we want you to know. I wish it were still here. I don't know why they left it off. Um, I know it's in some of the older translations, but I wish it were here because it really helps to, to kind of see the, it kind of stresses this desperate plea for him to come, for him to come and heal their brother. Look, the one that you love is very ill. Again, they were pleading for mercy from the one who loved them. And even as they were confident of his love, because of this illness, they desperately needed his mercy. Charles Spurgeon says about this passage, he says, The love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption, rheumatism, or asthma. We believe that. We still get sick. We still face death. Sickness is sometimes, sometimes it's caused by your sin. Um, Paul and James both make that clear. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, James says, if anybody's sick, let him call the elders of the church. They will pray over him. But most of the time, we don't know why we're sick. Other than the fact that we're human and we must deal with the um, effects of the curse on humanity. Other than we're human and we know that the wages of sin is death and so because there is sin in the world, we're bound to die. But unlike the rest of humanity, Christians have the privilege of prayer. Unlike the rest of humanity, Christians have the privilege of prayer. Richard Phillips, in his work, he says this. He says, praying involves, involves more than making petitions to the Lord. It rightly includes adoration. We should praise Him when we pray. It includes confession. We, we confess our sins to Him. It includes thanksgiving. But when it comes to asking the Lord to intervene, Mary and Martha's prayer here, it shows us three simple points. 
I'm going to give you three simple points about prayer. These are really simple and helpful. The first is this. They asked. They prayed. They brought the matter to Jesus. James chapter 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. They actually prayed about it. They didn't just say, we should pray about that. They didn't just say, I'll be praying for you, Lazarus. They actually prayed. They actually sent the message to Jesus. Calvin says this, he says, We are not forbidden a longer form of prayer, but the chief thing is to cast our cares and whatever troubles us into the bosom of God, that he may supply the remedy. This is how these women act toward Christ. They explain their trouble to him intimately and look for relief from him. They just simply prayed. That's a helpful step when talking about prayer. Do it. Pray. This is putting our trust in um, Psalm 46.1, for example, putting that trust into action. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. It's putting our trust in that statement into action. Do you believe that? Do you believe Psalm 46.1, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble? And when you get into trouble, pray. Our friend, um, J.C. Ryle, he writes this. He says, The lesson is one which ought to be deeply engraved in our memories. Living in a world full of disease and death, we are sure to need it someday. Sickness, in the very nature of things, can never be anything but trying to flesh and blood. Our bodies and souls are strangely linked together, and that which vexes and weakens the body can hardly fail to vex the mind and soul. But sickness, we must always remember, is no sign that God is displeased with us. No, more it is generally sent for the good of our souls. It tends to draw our affections away from this world and to direct them to things above. It sends us to our Bibles and teaches us to pray better. It helps to prove our faith and patience and shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. It reminds us that we're not to live always and tunes and trains our hearts for our great change. Let us be patient and cheerful when we are laid aside by illness. Let us believe that the Lord Jesus loves us when we are sick, no less than when we are well. The simple fact of the matter is that when their brother was sick, they prayed to Jesus. We ought to do this as well. Secondly, they this is really connected here, but they fixed their prayers on the one who loves. They prayed to the one who loves. They didn't pray with their minds set on how much they had loved and served and obeyed Christ. They didn't pray as the Pharisees did in another place. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I can get. Lord, hear my prayer. No, their, their faith was in his work. Their faith was in his love. Lord, he whom you love is ill. There's no doubt that Lazarus loved Jesus too. That Mary and Martha loved Jesus as well, but they are pleading with him based on his work and his love. Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, because he first loved us. 
It's on the basis of his love and on his character because he acts, he answers prayer for his name's sake. Think of Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so they prayed. They prayed to Jesus and they fixed their prayers on the one who loves. And then third, they, they left it to him. They left it to him. Now this obviously doesn't mean that they, they prayed and then they forgot about it. There is a, a uniqueness to this in that he's over on the other side of the Jordan River and so they, they literally send a, a message to him. But you can guarantee that they prayed with great hope and great expectation. That's why they were so upset that he didn't get there sooner. They were surprised that he didn't answer their prayer earlier. They expected, they believed that he would answer their prayer. And so they were upset and even surprised and confused when he didn't come, when he didn't get there in time. Now we'll talk about their disappointment later in the chapter. But I want to tell you, this is what praying in faith looks like. This is what praying in faith looks like. This is believing that Romans 8, 28 is not just a platitude or some kind of empty promise. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Praying in faith is believing that that's actually true. They got confused when it didn't look like it was going to work out so well. But I think that's why they were so upset with them. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But at this point, they're still interceding for their brother. Lord, he whom you love is ill. And so Jesus gives them an interesting response here in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then John says, No, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let me ask you the question. Who's Jesus talking to in verse 4? When he says this, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified to it. Who's he talking to? The context says that he's replying to those in verse 3 who made the request of him. Probably the messengers, probably literally it was whoever brought the message to him. He says this to them. Point being that they, and then he gives them two days. Um, Verse 6, he stayed there for two days long. He gives them this message then he gives them two days to travel back to Bethany with that answer. Two days for that message, verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. Two days for that message to get back to Mary and Martha. Have you ever had an answer to prayer like that? An answer to prayer, I don't mean an audible answer. (laughs) I mean one that seems either A, wrong, Or B, it seems really trite. On top of this, by the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And he waited two days before they they left. He and the disciples left to go and see them. 
That means that it's likely that by the time Jesus gets the message, Lazarus either may have already been dead, or at least by the time his answer gets back to the sisters, he's dead. Jewish custom um, was that when someone died, they were to be buried within 24 hours. So imagine getting this response of verse 4 here. This illness does not lead to death. This is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Imagine getting that response when you're walking home from the funeral. When you've got a a crowd full of mourners in your house. Well, we know because we know the end of this story that we can see that Jesus wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong because it's something bigger is going on here. But why would he say this? It just seems cruel. Is Jesus cruel? Is God cruel in how he answers our prayers? Some would say yes. Some would say that he is. Jesus was cruel to wait two days, to show up four days late. And on top of that, back in John chapter 4, when Jesus healed the Galilean official's son, he did it from a distance. He said, go and your son will live. Why wouldn't he do that here? Well, God is not cruel. In fact, God is kind. Jesus' actions and his emotions as this story, as this chapter unfolds, it testifies to his kindness and his love. John says that several times of how much he loved them. But sometimes... We're weeping at a funeral, and all we have are the promises of verse 4. Promises that seem confusing and far off. And so all we have is trust. Trust that he actually loves us. I think that's why verse 5 is put in the middle there, between verses 4 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Martha. Martha was the her sister back in verse 1. It was Mary and her sister and Lazarus. Mary was the one who anointed him. Mary was the one that Jesus said everyone would remember, would remember. But it was Martha who met him on the road in verses 20 and 21. It was Martha who first said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. And Lazarus. And sometimes the only assurance that we have is that he loves us. That he loves us. Even when verse 6 seems to be our life and it makes no sense to us. Why are you waiting to answer this prayer, Lord? What are you waiting for? But verse 6 makes sense in light of verses 4 and 5. Jesus loves them, but the glory of God was his chief end. And the glory of the Son of God was the reason that he came in the flesh at all. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And that's what's on the horizon here in chapter 11. We have a a small view of death. Lazarus died. He was dead. But Jesus here is talking about eternal death. Or really, he's talking about eternal life. 
This illness does not lead to death. Death is not Lazarus' final destination. This illness leads to resurrection. He's answering their prayer with the same thing that he said back in chapter 9, verse 3. This is happening that the works of God might be displayed in him. The death of Lazarus will end with a display of God's glory. This is how the words of uh, the promises and, and what John says in, in John 1.14, this is well, how it will, will be how it will come about. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lazarus' death and resurrection will be the occasion that God ordained to be the biggest and most revealing sign of Jesus' own upcoming death and resurrection, of his glorification. And so when you pray, remember that he is ordaining all things to be done for your good and his glory. This intercession here in verse 4, he whom you love is ill. And their response when he died was, if you'd been here, he, he'd still be alive. It shows their faith, confused as it is, but it shows that Jesus is about something so much bigger than this temporal world. I'll close with a quote from Bishop Ryle again. I really love this. Um, He says, let us turn from the passage, this, this passage here, these first six verses. Let us turn from the passage with a settled determination to trust Christ entirely with all the concerns of this world, both public and private. Let us believe that he by whom all things were made at first is he who is managing all with perfect wisdom. The affairs of kingdoms, families, and private individuals are all alike overruled by him. He chooses all the portions of his people. When we are sick, it's because he knows it will be for our good. When he delays coming to help us, it is for some wise reason. The hand that was nailed to the cross is too wise and loving to smite without a needs be or to keep us waiting for relief without a cause. He could have healed Lazarus from a distance. He's done it before. Had he been there, he could have raised Lazarus from the sickbed before he died. But his purpose, as difficult as it was for everyone, was to wait Let him die. Let him make sure that everybody knew that he was dead. Four days. Even his own sister said, it's going to stink if you open the door. And to say, Lazarus, come out. Because he has power over death. It was to show his resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about these things, as we, as we look at the beginning of this chapter are introduced to this interesting family that seemed to be um, so close to Jesus, John just emphasizes over and over again how much he loved them. And yet he doesn't really tell us anything else about them. But Lord, we can see uh, their prayers. We can see Christ's care. Father, remind us of your love for us. 
that our salvation and our prayers are not based on what we have done. They're not based on anything that we could do. But that they are rooted in that, in that you first loved us and sent your son to be a propitiation for our sins. Father, give us faith, even when it's confusing, that we may trust in you and trust in your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.